trust me, he just keeps saying to us, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live again, yet shall she live again. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, says to us, his people, his church, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, because I have all authority in my hand. He's the one who says, trust me, trust me, no matter who's mad at you, trust me, no matter who's walked out of your life, trust me. No matter how your financial situation may be quivering and quaking with the stock market going berserk, trust me. Trust me. No matter what the doctors say, no matter what the prognosis may be from those who read the charts and do the tests, trust me. Trust me. No matter who you're married to, trust me. Trust me. Isn't it true that we're all a work in progress? Everybody want to say amen to that? So the one who just looked at you with a little bit of disdain in her eye, just say, I am a, I am a work in progress. I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, but the Lord's not finished with me yet. And amen. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Now, we've been on that subject for quite a spell, and we don't know exactly when we'll get through with it, but there's, there's one more part that I just feel like this morning we need to, we need to look at. And, and I, I realize that what we're going to be talking about this morning may not be for a real broad audience. It may be for just a few, <clears throat> but I believe it's important. I want to retell using as many of the Apostle Paul's words, own words as we can. I want to retell his story. Paul could say, your greatest struggles can be the birthplace of your greatest freedom. Your greatest struggles can be the birthplace of your greatest freedom. And Jesus would say, trust me with that. Trust me that the birthplace for your greatest freedom may be what you're struggling with right now. The narrowing focus this morning because we can't cover all the categories of application with that in one setting. But this morning, your struggle with a faulty religious system, your struggles with a faulty or inadequate or misguided misdirected spiritual system. 
you can't live in this life on planet Earth without being a part, being influenced by, and in most cases, to some degree, a part of some kind of a system. Now, Webster defines a system as a regularly interacting or interdependent group of items forming a unified whole, or a system is a network of integrated parts serving a common purpose. A family is a system. Education is made up of systems. Professional pursuits and involvements involve of necessity a variety of systems, and on and on and on, a combination of integrated parts focusing on a common goal. That is true also in a spiritual sense. And to a large degree, I'm going to say, those who would be listening this morning, we have been influenced by to some degree, spiritual systems affecting our lives. That was, that was the Apostle Paul's story before he was ever an apostle. He, he was influenced by some very powerful systems. And one of the systems that he was influenced by was a system that Jesus just took on. And Jesus didn't call out that many individuals or systems in his day. He, he could have. He, he, knew. he knew who was what and what was what. But boy, there was one group that just seemed to get all over him. And it was a group that Saul of Tarsus, who later was to become Paul, was a part of. Saul will say in one of his accounts of his life, when he's on trial for his faith, he will say, I am a son of Pharisees. I'm a Jew, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm a son of Pharisees. In other words, he's saying, I'm not just a first-generation Pharisee. My daddy was a Pharisee. And my granddaddy was a Pharisee, and my daddy's daddy's daddy might have been a Pharisee. Don't know how far back, but he says, I am, a, I am a son of Pharisees. It was a system of specific, regimented, strict, and in many cases, narrow interpretation of the Bible, of the Old Testament. So concerned were the Pharisees and it started with them, this, this practice started with them, so concerned were they that they might disobey God, at least in their outward observance of his laws, that they made up a whole bunch of other rules that were barrier reefs to keep you from messing up with the big one. So that they would, you, you would be aware of don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. But the real thing you didn't want to do was this and over here because this is the one God said don't do. But they made up their own rules. 
they made up a bunch of rules. The word Pharisee comes from a, many believe, from a Hebrew word that means separate. They prided themselves in being separate from the tainted culture around them. Uh, they, were, they were Jewish men for the most part, but they prided themselves in all the stuff they didn't do, you know. We didn't do that. We don't do this other. We don't do that thing. And then the things that they would do. And they were just, they were just so proud of themselves as to what they had aligned with and what they had committed themselves to. And the, and the crazy thing about that kind of pursuit is you get to thinking because you're doing that or you're not doing it. You're not doing something nobody else is doing or you're doing something nobody else is doing. You, you get to thinking you're just, you're just a little bit better. You just, you just got, a, got a little bit higher standard than everybody else. And you, you have then the right to tell the rest of the folks how to live their lives. That you need to do like I do. You need to behave like I and And the thing was, they, they didn't seem to care that much about people. They just carried a whole lot about the principle of the thing. And so they had a way of being forceful and being mean and even being cruel in the enforcement of their opinions upon people. All in the name of God, all in the name of the Bible, they would worship. They weren't, they weren't, a, they weren't a bunch of... They weren't a bunch of heretics. They weren't a bunch of cane raisers out yonder. They were, they were right smack in the middle of the Jewish tradition of things and temple and, and synagogue and all the feast days. And... But here's what Jesus says about them. You, 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 had, you had to really, really do something to get on Jesus' nerves. You know, I mean, and some of the things that, that you'd think he ought to have been really ticked about, he, he, he would go have supper with those folks. He'd spend an evening with the tax gatherers and the sinners. But, but this group, Pharisees, then Jesus, this is Matthew 23. I won't try to read this whole chapter, but there's one whole chapter in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, that is devoted to Jesus taking apart the religious system, the faulty system of the Pharisees of which Saul, who would come to be the writer of nearly two-thirds of your New Testament, was a part of. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes being the lawyers, the ones who would uh, pars and decline all of the various aspects of the written law. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, Jesus is saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have said, excuse me, Moses, move over. We're going to take your seat. Speaking addressing the people, writing rules that they wanted ones to accept as being the way God would have it to be done. When Jesus is saying, in effect, they have no authority 
to move Moses out of his place. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, a, a piece of ornamental jewelry or, or dressing that would be worn in Jewish religious observers. They, they broaden them. They make them bigger than they really needed to be and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And they love being called by men rabbi or teacher. But do not be called rabbi, Jesus says. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And then Jesus lights unto them seven woes, seven of them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And it just goes right on. You can read the rest of that on your, on your own. But Jesus is saying about the Pharisees, they've got a religious system. They've got a spiritual system. But the system is faulty. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He was one of these. Now, he didn't do it out of a sense of wanting to disobey God. He thought because he was raised around it, brought up in it, that he was doing what God wanted him to do. The people around him who were Pharisees, a father, a grandfather, ones who would be his teachers, he respected as a child would an older teacher, as a young man would an older teacher. He just grew up in the system. So the system's opinions became his opinions. The system's preferences became his preferences. The, the system's duties became the duties that he followed. You know, a system can be, can be really a good thing. In a system, you, you find identity. You can find a sense of identity. You can find a sense of community or fellowship. You, you can find a sense of approval. You can find a sense of advancement within the system. And the system loves you as long as you're useful to the system. The system 
blesses you and is proud of you as long as you were walking in unison with the system. But what happens when something happens to you? What happens when you see something that you've never seen before? When you have a sense of something that you've never sensed before? That's one way or another, sooner or later, puts you in conflict with the system. Kick way over quickly, if you would, to, to the book of Acts. Hold your place in the Gospels, but, but I want you to find Acts chapter 26 real quickly. Years have passed since Jesus spoke and taught and began to bring the ones who would make up his church together. And, and then he was, he was crucified and he was buried and he was raised again. And then the Spirit was poured out upon the the church there in Jerusalem, and they began to testify with great power, and, and Jerusalem was shaken, and while all that was going on, the Pharisees, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of the Jews, along with the Sadducees and the scribes, they, they were all troubled and stirred up and threatened and jealous and angry and used whatever clout they could to try to snuff out the church. And then all of a sudden, they lose one of their greatest warriors, the, the very one that was, was willing to, to, to fight with whatever means they would give him and allow him to use to fight against the followers away of the way, the followers of Jesus, this, this heretic, the one who, who couldn't be the Messiah because he, he, he was spoken of in one of Moses' laws that cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. And they felt like that was, and Paul being included, Saul being included, that's the reason, one of the reasons, scriptural justifications, why Jesus of Nazareth could not be the Messiah. Moses says, you're cursed if you hang on a tree. And he hung on a tree as he was crucified, only to find out later that he was supposed to be. That's why he came. That's why he went to the cross to take your curse and my curse of the sins that I had committed, the laws of God that I had broken, that, that he was cursed. Thank God he was cursed, so I don't have to be cursed, and you don't have to be cursed. We, we receive the forgiveness, the freedom, the lifting because of what he did for us, but Paul couldn't see it. The system wouldn't let him see it. The interpretation of Scripture in the system wouldn't let him see it. But years later, when he stands before Agrippa, one of the rulers, and he's on trial for his faith in Jesus, he makes this statement describing that Damascus Road experience. And, and this line is not found in any of the other three accounts that Paul gave of what happened to him on the Damascus Road and who, who he met on the Damascus Road. But this, this line is unique to this telling of the story out of his own words, Acts 26, 15. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then this line, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you, Saul, 
to kick against the goads. We don't even know what a goad is unless somebody is goading us. We can use that just from a, from a mental image kind of thing. But what was a goad? It was a long pole. One man could handle it. Probably had to use two hands to use it. The work end of it, end of it was sharpened, came to a point. The other end was blunted. And it was used by those who were working with oxen to plow their fields or to take them out to the field or bring them back to the field. They would use the goad to give direction to the oxen. Poke them on the right side so they'd turn to the left. Jab them in the left side so they'd turn to the right. Stick them in the behind so they'd go faster and move along. Before we get the word goaded along. Jesus says to Saul, it's me you're persecuting. I am Jesus whom you're per- Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, folks, here's, here, here's the point of all this. Where Jesus knows that you and I have been a part of or are currently a part of some faulty spiritual system. The power of the system to trap us, to keep us from being able to see the rest of our lives, to keep us from being able to respond to him because the system protects us against those kinds of goadings from the Spirit to move in new directions. The Lord will say, to us like he did with Paul. I'm goading you. I'm goading you. There's direction that I'm giving to you. And he says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against God. Well, what were the goads? What were some of those goads for Saul? Could very well have been that somebody overheard Jesus speaking these words in Matthew 23. Some Pharisee or some Pharisee's leaker, you know, heard what was being said, reports it back. Can you believe what this Jesus of Nazareth said about us? He says we just show up at meetings to be seen. He says that we wear all this gaudy religious stuff and we come in with our entourage to show off. He's telling the people you can do what they say But don't you do what they do because they don't keep the law. He's saying about us that we're making up rules to put on people that are weighting them down, that are burdening them, that are making life hard for them. Can you believe he would say that? Well, he said it, and he said a lot more. The power of the word of the Lord to goad somebody, to press into somebody trapped in a spiritual system that is faulty, that is faulty. The word of Jesus. Over in the book of Acts, chapter 5. Find that one if you, if you will. Acts chapter 5, 
Verse 12. Maybe this is another goad. Because you see, a system, a faulty spiritual system, won't have true life-giving spiritual power in it. It'll have a lot of words. It'll have a lot of written statements. It'll have a lot of directives. But it will be devoid of life-changing, death-reversing, soul-rescuing power. Power. True, heaven-sent power will always be a threat to a faulty spiritual system. Here's what was going on in Jerusalem in those days. Verse 12, and at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, a part of the temple. But none of the rest of the people dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. This was in the early days of the church. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Pharisees are losing their influence to the manifestation of authentic heaven-sent power. To such an extent, look at this, verse 15, that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on the cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees of which the Pharisees were close partners, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord, <laughs> the, the, the limits of a system, you know, quoting scripture, Bible all over the place, just no power. I'm not, I don't even know why I'm saying that so loud, but I just, you know, just because you can quote a verse of scripture, just because you know John 3, 16, just know you, because you know how to get from San Antonio to heaven, doesn't necessarily mean that you're walking in power, you know? I mean, and we can have systems made up of all kinds of scripture and all kinds of right practices. But if it's truly a system that pleases the Lord, when power breaks out, when some old drug addict or somebody who's been on the backside of nowhere for all their life suddenly comes to know Jesus and shows up in the church or makes a phone call and says, I don't know what's happened to me, but there's something going off on the inside of me, and I think it's Jesus. Instead of the double first cousins of the Pharisees start saying, well, I'm just not so sure that that could be real because it didn't happen in our church. Because you didn't pray through it the way we think you ought to pray through it. 
or where were you when this happened? I was on the backside of nowhere is where I was. The double first cousin of the Pharisees can be threatened by, listen, threatened by somebody getting powerfully touched by the person of Jesus, by the presence of Christ. Folks, there's only one head of the church, and it's not Dr. Walker. It's not Billy Graham. It's not Mother Teresa. It's not the Pope. There's only one head of the church, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So instead of me bragging on the fact, well, I'm a Baptist, well, so what? I'm a Catholic. Well, big deal. I'm a Pentecostal. Well, so what again? Who are you a follower of? It ought to be Jesus. Instead of my identity as Pentecostalism, my identity as a Baptist, my identity as a Catholic, my identity needs to be in the one whom I'll never outlive, the one who has promised to never leave me and never forsake me. Now, here's the deal. Saul made his people so mad at him that they literally turned their backs on him because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he had to make a choice. Do I go with the community and the fellowship and the identity and the security and the provision of being a part of this system? Or am I going to go with this one who has no visible system? I mean, only visible system he had were the poor in Jerusalem. There were so many poor that, that, the, that the widows and the orphans had to be fed. That was the government provision. It was the church taking care of folks. They weren't rich people. They weren't the high and mighty. The ones he would become the closest to were the ones who had no standing if they had any. But they were all under one person, one banner, one love, one life, and his name is Jesus, and he would take care of them. He would shepherd them. It wouldn't be a system shepherding them. It would be the Savior shepherding them. So Paul, Paul had to make the choice of between security in the system and security in the Savior. Standing in the system and his stature with the Savior. The truth about Saul is Evidently, he had never known not only the power of God like he experienced on that day of Damascus. He had never known the personal love of God like he experienced on that day. Saul, Saul, that heaven would call you by your first name. Not just number 5,342.3. Saul, Saul, in that instant, he knew he was known in heaven. In that instant, he knew it wasn't wrath coming in him because there would have been no speaking. There would have only been cinders and smoke because he would have been destroyed. But it was the love of God. It was the love of God. It was the love of God for him specifically. 
He wasn't there with anybody else other than those who were, who were his entourage to go and capture the followers of the way in Damascus. His name was called out. Powerfully, there was a light that shone around us, brighter than the sun. And then I heard a voice, and the voice called my name. Folks, listen. No faulty system can stand up to a fresh revelation of the power of God or the love of God to your heart. When you know that, when you sense that, you're drawn, you're set free. At that moment, you're free. Free to follow him. You're just seeing this other in the rearview mirror of your life. They laid him back to, I don't know how I got off on all that. It was relevant, I'm sure. But back to Acts chapter 5. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison. Taking them out, he said, go your way. The angel did. Stand and speak to the people in the temple. The whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. But somewhere in the background, Paul is Saul. This is, this is in his first life. He had to have been getting these reports. Saul, we locked them up. Saul, the soldiers went, gathered them up, hauled them to the public jail, locked them up in the public jail, and this morning, when we went to fetch them, they weren't there. The gates were locked. The soldiers were there. But the ones that were supposed to be in the big house were not there. Another goad. Another goad. The system can help you deflect the goads for a while. But the goads of God, folks, listen, have a cumulative effect on a spirit of a man or a woman. It may seem like nothing when it happens, but you get off and you get away and get to thinking. That's what Jesus said. Was that the power of God that was doing that and healing those people and or is it really, to, to yourself, you can't, you can't even talk about that stuff publicly to the system people. Yeah, amen. But you keep going over those things in your own heart. So they did. The apostles went, spoke again, and verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Captain went along, verse 26, with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people lest they should be stoned, lest the ones who went to arrest the apostles should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, this name of Jesus. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, fill in the blank, dudes. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and we get it. You don't get it because the Holy Spirit hasn't been given to you. Even though you're quoting scripture, even though you never miss a church service, even though you know all the songs, devoid of the life of the Spirit of the living God. How can that be? It must can be. But now look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Stop right there. Hold your place in verse 35 and turn over to Acts chapter 22. We're going back to Acts chapter 5. But I want you to look and see something in Acts chapter 22. Paul is about to give another one of his personal defenses as he's being put on trial for his faith. And the ones driving the trial are the ones who were part of the system that he used to be a part of. Watch what he says. He's, he's before the Jews, a gathering of the Jews. Uh, that were upset at him because he had taken some men they thought uh, into the temple, Gentiles who shouldn't have been there. Verse 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And you can read the rest of that particular account, and it coincides with the Acts 9 and the Acts 26. But I want you to notice verse 3. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I was born in Mississippi, but I feel like I've been brought up in San Antonio. We've been, we've been here for a while. Brought up in this city. But then he says, educated under Gamaliel. To this day, there are three prominent Jewish rabbis whose teaching influenced the thinking of the Jewish orthodoxy. A couple of them were prior to the first century. But the preeminent first century 
rabbi, remembered even to this day among Jewish scholars, is this man named Gamaliel. Paul says, and he uses a specific word. Gamaliel was, in a sense, a pedagogue. He was, he was the one who taught me as a child, a, a pedagogue, a child teacher. Gamaliel raised me. I was his from boyhood into young adulthood. One of the most eminent and prominent and most popular and most widely received teachers of the law in the eyes of the Jewish people was Gamaliel. I was raised at his feet. Folks, you talk about the binding of a system. This was more than just a lead professor in his doctoral program. This is more than just someone who would wield a little bit of influence. But he spent time with Paul. It's as if Saul was raised by Gamaliel. You know what's really tough? It's when folks you trust mentally, you would trust academically, you would trust them logically, and then something comes up that challenges your ability to trust them 100%. That place of insecurity, who am I? I'm an idiot. This guy's really smart. He's, he's known by people all over. He's really smart. Who am I? The system has ways Binding us academically, binding us mentally with conclusions. But now go back to Acts 5. We're back to goads. Out of the blue, Gamaliel in the council. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them but a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to the men to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him, and he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case... I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. If this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's difficult for you to kick against the goats. They took his advice, verse 40, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, beat them, and whipped them, and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. The goad, the goad, even even Saul's major professor says you be careful what you do with these men lest you be found fighting against God. Now let, let me ask you another question. How did we get these words? How did we know what Gamaliel said if everyone except the council itself remained in the room. The, the apostles were sent out. Who was the leak? The book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke. Luke. And Luke traveled for many days, months, and even years with the Apostle Paul. I believe that it is very likely that it was in a private conversation with Luke who would later write the history, the acts of the apostles, the acts of the Holy Spirit. He would record it. He was getting his information in these kinds of private conversations directly from somebody who was there. Saul, I remember now what my old teacher Gamaliel said to me. And he was in the system, but he was right about that. See, the system doesn't mean you throw everybody out and you throw everything you learned out. Jeremiah talks about you've got to separate the precious from the vile. And you hold to what is precious, you hold to what is true, and you let the rest go. Another goad. Signs and wonders, thousands flocking, even some of the priests coming to faith. This miraculous escape from prison by the leaders of the group. And they're not scared. They're not frightened off. There's a boldness inside them that Saul and the rest of his buds couldn't comprehend. When we say boo, everybody's supposed to run for cover. We've done way more than say boo and that. They're just, they're just standing right back up in our face. Where do they get that? Because you see, a system, a system can inject a person with power and fearlessness and loyalty to someone 
who's outside the system. I just want to reference what happened to Stephen. Acts chapter 7, you can read that account, but it's just so amazing. This young deacon, one of the seven deacons, and and he was he didn't just serve the church, but he was he was brilliant enough and wanting to engage the community and, and, and be involved in spreading the word of Jesus that he, he entered into a debate with a group of ones, group of Jewish radicals called the freedmen, and they trump up false charges and they haul him in before the, the Sanhedrin, give him a chance to speak, and then he just tells the truth about them, that you were the ones who who betrayed the only innocent one. You're the one, you are the ones who were responsible in at least part of the sense for the death of Jesus the Christ. You, you've become his betrayer. And they says he's grown men. They just started, they just started gnashing their teeth. And listen, it's so mad they're just grinding their teeth. And they finally jump up and haul him out to stone him. It also says that, that all those who were there in the council looked upon Stephen as he was being tried, and they said that his face looked like the face of an angel. Now, there was supposed to just be only the Sanhedrin there, only the scribes, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, or scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees in that room. How did that word get out? I'll submit to you. An eyewitness, perhaps named Saul, looked at Stephen, listened to Stephen. And we know there's a connection because it says as they went out, the witnesses went out to stone Stephen. They put their their garments, their clothes under the charge of a young man named Saul. And Stephen, as he's dying, saying, Behold, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand. Lord, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. Goad, goad, goad. It wasn't long after that, at least in the pages of Scripture, you turn from chapter 7 over to chapter 9, and that's where we find the account. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, he will repeat this. This this is recorded by Luke. But Paul himself will tell it like this two other times in the gospel. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Jesus? Or who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. And then you read on through, and it says, but the Lord, the Lord says to me, this is when he's speaking to Ananias. He gets him into Damascus, and, he's, and Ananias is to come, and, and his healing would be complete. His eyesight would return, and then he would be, he would be um, involved in growing now as a brand-new believer with his heart full of the truth of who Jesus was. But the Lord said to Ananias, verse 15, go. You go to him, Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Folks, Jesus had to get him out of that faulty system because one of the tenets of that faulty system was it's us four and no more. It's our little group of Pharisees. We We vote the same way. We drive the same stuff. We dress the same way. We think the same way. And one of the ways we think is those Gentiles out there aren't worthy of our time of day. That we'll throw them a few little breadcrumbs every now and then of kindness and, and just remind them of how great we as Jewish people are and particularly the, the elite within the Jewish people and just look with pity and disdain down upon the Gentiles because they're not natural-born Jews. And yet Jesus says, my design, oh, my design for this Pharisee right here is that he's going to be my apostle to the Gentiles in particular and to the rulers, the kings of the earth, the bulk of which would all be Gentiles. He's going to get it that I didn't come just for Jewish people. I didn't come just for American people. I didn't come just for white people or black people or brown people. I came for the whole world. And I don't expect the whole world, Jesus would say, to immediately believe in me. Because when he came at this time and he spoke those words to Nicodemus, it wasn't a church. Nobody had repented of nothing. Nobody had been baptized except those John baptized. But but there there was none of this, well, you don't deserve the love of God and the favor of God unless you've cleaned your life up and unless you've stepped into our, what we consider to be an approved lifestyle. Here's what happened to Saul. Turned into Paul. It was the spirit of Jesus that came to indwell him, that filled him, invaded him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet so that what he spoke was in sync with the new system. What he felt was in step with the Savior's heart. He writes in Titus 3 verse 5, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. It wasn't me working it out with keeping the law. He rescued me. My only part was believing in him. It wasn't about behaving, behaving, behaving. It was about believe, 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 believe. But when the kindness of God our Savior 
The faulty system won't give you permission to operate in kindness with people. Well, you clean yourself up, you straighten out, you quit that, and then maybe there'll be a little pittance that will throw you away. But when the kindness of God are saved, why did Jesus come? Did he come because he was mad? Did he come because it was judgment, to bring judgment that brought him here? Paul said, in effect, that's what I used to think. That we're just lucky that we haven't all been destroyed because of the things that we haven't done, but I'm working so hard to make sure I don't do that many things wrong anymore, but because God basically is raw, he's, he's really mad, and he has a right to be mad with the human race. Now, how, he went from there to Titus 3.5. But when the kindness of God our Savior, the kindness of our Savior, the kindness of our Savior, so he sought out and he allowed to have himself to have fellowship with the ones who were the moral despicables of his day. Pick out the most morally despicable lifestyle and profession to you, as we say sometimes around here. And you put that in every place you see, tax gatherers and sinners. And you find out how much the kind heart of Jesus was moving to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you need to get free of a faulty spiritual system? If, if, you're, if you're having to check with somebody before you can feel like you thought something right, I got to talk to this one. I got to see what they think. I've got to weigh it from here, weigh it from here. It's all of this lateral stuff and none of this stuff right here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The way out, the way to test the faultiness of the system, even before you even wonder if I need to get out, is just how preeminent, how preeminent is the Lord Jesus Christ in the system? Is he known and is he loved as the lover of your soul? Are the ones in whatever the system, or do they encourage you to seek him? And said, well, we better see what the pastor thinks about this. Or, oh, well, if you're going to really be anybody in this city, you're going to have to be a part of this church. You're going to have to bow and scrape to that. You know, system. It's a system. It's you and Jesus, brother. It's just you and Jesus, sister. And if he's all you got, he's all you're ever going to need. I remember Vance having another old preacher saying that. His wife died, wife of 60, 70 years, preaching to a room full of young preachers at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And he said, I just got one thing to say. Little bitty guy about to be around as a microphone stand. And 
squeak a little voice, but just authority all over him. He said, I'm going to tell you, young man, when Jesus is all you've got, he's going to be all you need. And he's in effect saying, I'm, I'm proving that now. I miss my wife. I miss our time together. But he is showing himself to be all I need. Trust me. Your greatest struggles can be the birthplace of your greatest freedom. Amen. Lord, thank you for your time with us this morning in this house. Thank you for your time with us out across this world as folks have been able to hear and be a part. We bless you. Oh, Lord God, oh, Lord God, may it be true even more today than two or three weeks ago when we set out to seek first the kingdom of God, realizing that it is seeking first and most your presence. Your presence, Lord. Your presence. Lord, will you deliver us from the system that, that we've innocently become a part of, but give us the permission to realize that there should be no system that should ever be allowed to divide our loyalties with you. Paul was challenged by Gamaliel and all of those around him, and he would, would face them. We read those accounts, Lord, where he, he went face to face with them, but they had no power to recapture him because you had now captured him with your love for him and the demonstration of your power. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live there. Help us to live at that place. In Jesus' name, amen.